Okay, good morning. My name's Jake. Nice to see all of your beautiful faces. Everybody's smiling. I saw somebody literally just smile at me. That's uh, great. Uh, like Jared said, we are kicking off week, our part two of our devoted theme, and that's community. And when I think of community, I think of meaningful relationships around the person of Jesus. All right, I think of meaningful relationships around the person of Jesus. Community played a central part in the early church and the expansion of the gospel. And so this theme is pulled right from scripture. It's in Acts 2, verse 42 through 47. And I want to look at it together and refresh our memory. That's not going to be the passage that we're going to focus on this morning, but I want to refresh our memories why we're doing this. Why is this theme this year? So follow along with me. As you do, if you have a pen or maybe you're taking notes, write down some characteristics that you see listed of community here as I read it. Write them down or underline them in your Bible, okay? Here we go. Acts 2, verse 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let me pray and open our time and let's dive in. So Father, thank you. Thank you for your love and your grace, Lord. Thank you for how you're working and moving. Lord, give us boldness today as we step out of here. Give us boldness to question in our hearts what it is you want for us, Lord. Give us boldness to see, see the need to be wrapped around and wrapped up in Christian community. Lord, again, we just thank you for your love and your grace. I pray that you would use me as a mouthpiece today and that our hearts would be open. Pray all of this in your name. Amen. You better answer that. Okay, characteristics of the church that I see listed in here. Let me go through them really quick. Here we go. The early church and the community was all in. Right? They were devoted to learning, uh, being together, praying together, eating together. Supernatural power and signs were being done. Like There was healings happening. Sacrificial and generous giving was happening. People were taking their items, their stuff, and selling it and giving to anyone that had need. Like They cared for each other. They were together often. That scripture says daily. They were together. They were grateful and worshiping. And their community grew. The Lord added to their, to their number daily those who are being saved. Healthy things grow. And this is the picture of community that we aspire to, right? Here at Generation, we want to foster those same meaningful relationships. We want to foster those same meaningful relationships. We are designed to be in meaningful relationships around the person of Jesus. And those relationships are meant to continually bring each one of us back to Jesus and his transformative power. These relationships are meant to, to help us become more like Christ and ultimately to help others do the same. So this theme for the year has made me question or start to process what meaningful relationships really look like. Like what do they really look like? Like what characteristics stick out that make me go, man, I want to be surrounded by that type of community, by those types of meaningful relationships. And I kept going back to the same question over and over again. No matter what angle I tried to figure it out and process what these meaningful relationships meant, it came from the same angle. 
who is bringing me back to Jesus? You might ask it this way, who's bringing you to Jesus? And as a caveat, (laughs) who are you bringing to Jesus? If you're in this type of community, in these meaningful relationships, who are you bringing to Jesus? So I asked that question over and over to myself. And I ended up coming along and my memory popped in my head this passage. Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. And I want to read it together. I want to read it in its entirety. It's 12 verses. But I promise you, you will not be let down by the story we're about to read. So let me read it. Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many, many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose, immediately picked up his bed, went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. I think that was an understatement. We've never seen anything like this. Definitely an understatement. Get this, they're in Capernaum. This is Jesus' home. I'm a very detail-oriented person. Jarrett will tell you that. I like details. I like asking a lot of questions. He was probably at Peter's house, or maybe Peter's at mother's-in-law's house. This is their home. Like they, they, this, is, this is where they lived. This is where they were from. And so all these people, this crowd is, is jam-packed in the house and it's flowing out the door. And Jesus is inside preaching to the crowd, including the scribes who are trying to figure out who this guy really is. They're scrutinizing everything he's saying. And suddenly four men show up with a paralyzed man on a mat. And they want to get in the house. And they butt up against all these people outside the house and they just can't get in. And even, they may even have looked back at them and been like, eh, not gonna happen today, dude. Jesus is in there. And I don't know about this, who this guy is, but I'm trying to figure it out. And so they get resourceful. Like get determined. And I can imagine the conversation that they had. Here's a picture of the house. This is, the, this is stairs that would have led up. Now, that room where the stairs are attached uh, to the left of the stairs uh, is the, the larger room, is like a common space. Now, this isn't an exact replica of the home they were at. It's actually in, you can go see this home where they think Peter's mother-in-law's house was. But this is, this is just a representation. And so that would have been the common space where everybody would have gathered together. There would have been food in there. They, they would have talked. That's where they would, have, they would have broke bread together in that larger room. And so... I imagine the conversation is they're standing out and they can't get into where Jesus is, these, these four guys. One bro looks at the one other bro and is like, listen, man, I got a great idea. 
a brilliant idea. Let's go on the roof and rip it off. And the other guy's like, that's a terrible idea. And the other two bros are like, let's do it. We're doing it. We're going to rip the roof off. So they run up the stairs. They're on the roof. This is a common place. It's sturdy enough for you to stand on. Like in the day, you might have dried your linens up there or grains. And in the evening, it would have been a great place to hang out. It would have been nice and cool and calm. The kids would have been locked away downstairs. You could go up on the roof and hang out. It would have been a great place. So they go up on the roof. And they start digging. Imagine you're in this house. Imagine you're in this room. You're in this room. And you start hearing footsteps right now. Like, and then the dirt starts to fall. And the dust, the room starts to fill up with dust. And there's dirt clods coming down. Jesus himself is starting to like look up and is, is dodging dirt clods. And now the room is like filled with dirt. Have you ever been distracted during preaching? Like this isn't just a baby crying or somebody spilling their coffee. Like this is the roof coming off. Like imagine the roof coming off in here. Like it'd be crazy. It'd be nuts. And then suddenly the sun starts to peek through. This bright Capernaum sun starts to come through and you're wondering, you're in the room now. You have, you're not listening to Jesus anymore. Like Jesus has probably stopped talking at this point. He's lost the crowd's attention. Everybody's trying to figure out what's going on. Jesus probably knows exactly what's going on. But everybody's wondering. Dirt falls. Mark's description in, in the scriptures is, is one of like a total demolition project. Like think Chip and Joanna Gaines, demolition day, like he's kicking in walls, okay? Think uh, Ty Pennington, anybody know? Extreme Home Makeover, you know what I'm talking about. Demolition day. They're going in, man. They're ripping it open. And Paul's, Mark's, Mark's description paints a picture of major demolition. The text literally says, they removed the roof, In the NIV version, I think it says they unroofed the roof. It's pretty crazy. Then there's this long pause. Mark doesn't record a single spoken word. There's this long pause. And I would imagine that as this man is lowered, everybody is wondering what the heck's going on. And they're trying to figure it out. The man's lowered and lowered right in front of Jesus. and, and, And it's a paralyzed man. And everybody's waiting to see what happens next. And again, Mark doesn't record a single spoken word. The next thing he says, as he looks at the man on the mat, and I would imagine he looks up at the friends, looks back down at the mat, he says, son, your, your sins are forgiven. Which is a bit odd because the guy didn't ask for that. He didn't say anything to Jesus. You see, it was a common belief in their day that, that physical suffering was the result of personal sin. That was a common belief in their day. Physical suffering was a result of personal sin. All we know is that Jesus makes an announcement that shocks the crowd. This man has sinned, and Jesus has authority to forgive his sins, which perks up the ears of the scribes. And in their hearts, in their hearts, they start to question. The penalty for something like this is death, and surely this Yahoo deserves it. Like He's speaking crazy stuff. He deserves to die. The passage doesn't tell us that they say anything out loud. Jesus sees that in their hearts they're questioning. So he says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, pick up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. 
So picture it. To the amazement of the crowd and to the, the upset of the scribes who are probably ticked at this point and to the friends staring down through this hole to their joy, their pure delight that their friend stands up and walks. And at this point, the crowds move out of the way. He runs out the door. The friends run down the stairs and they're celebrating. They're fist bumping, they're chest bumping. They run off into the sunset and they leave a demolished house in their wake. <laughs> like they don't even fix it up. There's no fixer up here. They just leave it. They're out. It's amazing what just happened. And then finally the crowd speaks. What do they say? We've never saw anything like this. This is amazing. Imagine if you were in the room and this happened. This guy who seemingly can't move at all gets up and runs out, walks out of the building. See, if we go back and read all of Mark 1 to get some context, which I did for you, so you're welcome. If we go back and read Mark 1 all the way up to this passage, we would see a major theme, and that is the supremacy of Jesus, the power of Jesus. We would see a major theme. He's calling people out to follow him. He's performing miracles. Word is getting around about this Jesus guy. He's traveling. He's teaching. So it's no surprise here that in Mark 2.2, it says many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And then Mark adds a sentence in there that I think we might look over, but it's so important that we catch it. And he was preaching the word to them. He was preaching the word to them. I don't think they realized exactly what was happening. That's why they were there and trying to figure it out. But as we continue reading, it's from the words of Jesus that this man is, like his sins are forgiven. It's from the words of Jesus that he's healed, from his words. So I think it's important that we take some time to look at the paralyzed man. What are some things that we notice? Just a couple, okay? The man's physical need was obvious, painfully obvious. He was paralyzed. <laughs> he couldn't walk. <laughs> he had to be carried. And we don't know how severe his paralysis was. We don't know, like, if it was his whole body. Like, could he not talk? Was it just his legs? Was it his arms? It doesn't really matter because what we know is that he was confined to a bed. A, a bed. It was that bad that he was confined to a bed. It affected all of his life, and that was pretty obvious. More important. The man's spiritual need was desperate. We know this man was a sinner, which meant that his desperate need was not healing from God, but it was wholeness before God. That's our desperate need in all of our lives. Our physical suffering ultimately goes back to the fall. When, When sin entered the world, when Adam and Eve fell, so did suffering and pain of all kinds. It all entered the world Every pain we feel, like every form of cancer, every ounce of depression and anxiety, any suffering or hurt, whatever you're feeling, it all can go back to the fall. And it testifies to the reality, all of this hurt and pain, it all testifies to the reality that this world is not as it should be. And the main problem is that we are separated from God by sin in a world that is full of suffering. So our desperate need is is to not get rid of suffering in its entirety. That would be awesome. Our desperate need is to be reconciled to God, which makes us then look at Jesus. Let's look at a couple important things we see. Let's look at who he is and what he's done. 
right? In verse 10, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. And this was not a reference to his humanity at all. It was actually a powerful statement of his authority. And I think the scribes knew that. He, he is prophesying or fulfilling a prophecy from Daniel 7. If you want to go back and read Daniel 7, it's a great read. I would recommend it. It's a great book, great chapter. Jesus, Jesus is powerful and has authority. And get this, Jesus has the authority to see our hearts. Right after Jesus' announcements for the forgiveness of sins, he turns to the scribes and he sees their hearts. He sees their questioning hearts. They didn't say a word. It was all in their hearts. And I imagine they all had different thoughts. Slightly different thoughts. All the same theme, slightly different thoughts. This guy's an idiot. What is he saying? He can't say that. He's going to die. They're going to kill him. We're going to kill him. He can't say those things. And in the same way, Jesus knows what is in every one of our hearts right now. All the hidden agendas, all the deep secret thoughts, all the sin and suffering we don't want anyone else to know. He knows it. And he knows the good stuff too. To the Son of Man, Jesus has authority to see our hearts. But not only does he have the authority to see our hearts, he has authority to forgive our sins. And that is the greatest news of all. He has authority to forgive our sins. See, I said it earlier that our physical suffering ultimately goes back to the fall when sin entered the world. So did suffering and pain of all kinds. Every pain we feel, every form of cancer, every suffering and hurt, it all goes back to the fall and it all testifies to the reality that this world is not as it should be. There's war currently happening in our world. There's famine currently happening in our world. There's children dying, people getting hurt. There's suffering in our world. And the main problem is that we are separated from God by sin in a world that is full of suffering. That's the main problem. So our desperate need, like I said, is not to get rid of suffering in its entirety, but it's to be reconciled to God. That's our desperate need. If sin, if sin is the root of all suffering, which it is, if it's the root of all suffering, then what we need most is someone to solve the problem. We need someone with power, not just over demons and disease. We need someone with power over sin and death. So the scribes were right. Only, only God can forgive sins. They were right. But what they failed to see in the moment was that God in the flesh was literally standing right in front of them right in front of their very eyes. And that's, that's the good news that they couldn't see. The greatest news in all the world, that God has not left sinners alone. He has not left us alone. God himself has come to us. He can sympathize with us. He's been through what we've been through. Whatever you're feeling, I can guarantee you that he felt it on the cross. And throughout his life, he had to eat and sleep like us. He knows what we've been through and he wants to be a part of our lives. He has lived a life we could not live, a life of perfect, sinless obedience to the Father. He was able to stand where Adam fell in the garden. Then, for no earthly, logical reason at all that we can figure out, he chose to die on a cross for our sins as our substitute. That's crazy. 
I cannot imagine dying for, for, <laughs> for some people in this world. My wife, my kids, my mom, my dad, my sister, my nieces and nephews, sure. Maybe some close friends. A murderer? Hmm, I'm not sure. But here's Jesus dying for our sins. And then the good news, <laughs> it just keeps getting better. It's, it keeps getting even better. Because Jesus, he didn't stay dead for long. He rose from the grave in victory over sin and death. And now he offers reconciliation to God for anyone who repents and believes in him. That is the gospel. But sadly, it's not the gospel that's being preached everywhere. There's so many places around the world and right here in North Carolina, right here in Johnson County, where a false gospel is being preached that says, if, if you believe in Jesus, your sickness will go away. If you believe in Jesus, you'll be healed forever. Physically, you'll be healed forever. That's not the gospel. The gospel offers much, much better news than that. The gospel is not trusting in Jesus and your sicknesses will be gone. The gospel is putting your faith and trust in Jesus and your sins will be gone forever. That's the gospel. Listen, when we fully realize that, when we fully realize that Jesus has died for our sins, when we fully realize the root of suffering is severed, it's gone. When our sins are gone, we are reconciled with God with the very power of Christ. So what does that mean? Why is it important? What well, means we can, no matter what happens, in this life or, or to our bodies that are all wasting away, it means that we can know that no, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate you and me from the love and grace of God through Jesus. So if you have placed your trust in Jesus, then you can know that pain and hurt, conflict, depression, anxiety, a bad marriage, bad parenting, cancer, tumors, you name it, you can guarantee that death itself will not have the last word because death has been defeated by the Son of Man and his name is Jesus and he will have the last word. That's the guarantee of the gospel. So we pointed out some important things about the paralyzed man and about Jesus. And we could have pointed out a ton more about Jesus, but I'm going to spare you about an hour. And now I want to look at the four friends. And they were certainly friends. They were determined. Like, there are, like I said, there are some things I would do for people. I would carry somebody. I probably wouldn't rip off a roof for somebody. Maybe. But it has to be the right person. But these four friends, they were determined. They trusted so much in what Jesus could do for their paralyzed friend. They were determined to get him there no matter the cost. They carried him. They probably embarrassed themselves by ripping off a roof and interrupting Jesus' teaching. This guy who everybody was trying to figure out who it was. Is he the savior? They probably embarrassed themselves a little bit. They ripped an entire roof off of a building. It's pretty radical. All to get their friend in front of Jesus. And in today's world, it's easy for us to see our friends who are far from Jesus and think, somebody else will help them. 
I can't, I can't help them. They might be offended by what I say. I don't want to offend them and then lose that friendship. They already know Jesus. There's, there's nothing else I can do. They already know Jesus. They'll, they'll work and move in, in, own, in their own ways. But that's not what these four friends did. Hey, sometimes taking your friends to Jesus takes a lot of time. It takes praying without ceasing, building up a, a solid, meaningful relationships, caring for them in normal, mundane things of life. And sometimes it's telling them the truth in love, showing them the gospel and always being the light of Jesus to them. The biblical love doesn't mean arguing or sorry, agreeing with everything someone says just to make them feel comfortable. It doesn't mean sugarcoating something to, to, pee, to appease their, their emotions or their feelings. That's not biblical love. Biblical love is showing them truth and love and grace and taking them back to Jesus who loves them more than they could ever imagine. That's biblical love. And he can heal them both physically and spiritually. That's love. So in light of what we looked at about the paralyzed man and about Jesus and about the four friends, in light of that, who are we and how should we live? Who are we and how should we live? You see, some of us in this room are the paralyzed man. (laughs) We're stuck on a mat. We can't even see or know that Jesus is up the street. Maybe we do know that Jesus is up the street, but we can't get to him. The paralyzed man needed his community. He needed, in all caps, needed his community. Without his community, he would not have been able to encounter Jesus where he was spiritually and physically healed. Because of these meaningful relationships that poured out time and energy, he would not have been a Jesus. Now, could Jesus have worked and moved in a different way to reach the paralyzed man? Sure, let me read verse five to you though. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. When he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. So hear what I'm saying. His friends carried him to Jesus, both physically and spiritually. And because Jesus saw their faith, he was healed spiritually. His sins were forgiven. And a bonus, he was healed physically. We all need that type of community. We need communities surrounding us who bring us to Jesus. So how should we live if we're the paralyzed man? Well, we should recognize our need to be surrounded by Christian community. We should see the need to be in community. That God did not design us to live life alone, to live in isolation. He designed us to be together, to be devoted to one another, to be encouraging one another, to be calling each other's sins out. That's what he designed us for. And if you're one of the four friends, you have such faith and dedication to your community that you would go out of your way to bring them to Jesus. No matter what's in front of them, no matter what they're facing, you are determined to bring them back to Jesus. See, we are designed to be in meaningful relationships around the person of Jesus. And these relationships are meant to continually bring 
each one of us back to Jesus and his transformative power. And these relationships are meant to help us become more like Christ and ultimately to help others do the same. He didn't design you to be alone. He understands loneliness and hurt and suffering. He felt that loneliness and that isolation. He felt it on the cross when he died for our sins. He doesn't want that for us. I want you to consider joining a community group. Here's the sales pitch. Community groups, DNA groups. And while I want you to be in those and I want you to engage in those, those atmospheres and, and those environments here at Generation, meaningful relationships don't start with forms and systems or structure. They start with each one of us in this room. One-on-one, person-to-person. It takes you taking the next step if you're stuck. If you're the paralyzed man, stuck on the side of the road. It takes you taking the next step. Or it takes those of you in meaningful relationships or in community to extend that experience and that invite to others by making new friends and inviting them into your community. So let me ask the question again. Who's bringing you to Jesus? Who's bringing you to Jesus? And who are you bringing to Jesus? Put another way, you might have heard me say this or Jarrett say this, who are you discipling and who is discipling you? Who is bringing you to Jesus? In your pain, in your depression, in your anxiety, in your loneliness, who's bringing you to Jesus? I'm gonna invite the band to come back up as we close out our time. I I could keep beating the drum of why you and, and I need community, why we should be in a community group, why we should be surrounding ourselves with, with, with people who are going to take us to Jesus in every aspect of life. And I'm not just talking about our sins and, and taking us and saying, you, you need to confess your sins to the Lord. I'm not talking about that. While that does need to happen, I'm talking about every day with your parenting, with your marriage, with financial decisions, every aspect of life, depression, anxiety, whatever you're suffering with, who's taking you back to Jesus? While I could keep beating the drum, I want you to hear from people who might be sitting in this room with you, who are in community. Yeah, it's a community group and it might be a DNA group, but they're in community. They have these meaningful relationships that are surrounding them. We just call them community groups and DNA groups, but it's the same idea. It's the same principle and concept. So let me pray, we'll go right into this video. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your love and your grace. Lord, I pray for boldness as we walk out of here this morning. Lord, that you would convict our hearts. That you would remind us throughout the week as we encounter pain and hurt suffering, decisions, Lord, that we would 
as we're making those decisions, if we're feeling an absence of community, Lord, that we would seek it out. Lord, I pray for those that are already in community. They would have a boldness to invite those around them who are far from Jesus into meaningful relationships around you, Lord. It's what you designed us for. Lord, we pray all of this in your name. Amen.